it seems that our personal relationships are remarkably difficult to keep intact. Uh, a look at the front and back pages of the tabloid press confirms it, uh, dominated by uh, problems in celebrity marriages this week. This week, uh, Cheryl Cole announced her split from husband Ashley. Meanwhile, the John Terry affair continues to make the news with Wayne Bridge announcing his withdrawal from the uh, England squad for the World Cup following the revelations of uh, Terry's alleged affair with Bridge's former girlfriend. And yesterday, as they played one another, they wouldn't even shake each other's hands. Away from sport, the media has told us of relationship problems at number 10, uh, with the Chancellor announcing how the forces of hell were unleashed against him when he predicted the worst recession in Britain in 60 years. And then, of course, there have been all those accusations of bullying. Look, the point is this. Personal relationships seem remarkably difficult to hold together. That's certainly uh, my experience as a pastor. By far the most common pastoral issue I have to deal with is relationship breakdown. Uh, broken friendships at work, uh, in the church, between friends, and of course family uh, at home. Uh, the, closest the, the closer the relationship was in the first place, the greater the pain when the relationship breaks down. All around us then we see the need for reconciliation. That's our big word today. Uh, in our lead up to Easter, we're looking at the, the cross and considering all that Jesus has done for us on the cross. So far, we've looked at substitution and last week, propitiation. Uh, if you've missed either or both of those sermons, let me remind you that they are available on the website and on CD from the office. So here at Fullwood, you can catch this, se this series on Sundays, online and on CD. We really are making the unmissable unmissable. Well, so much for the commercial break. Uh, this week we look at reconciliation. For reconciliation is right at the heart of the cross. It is right at the heart of the Christian gospel. Well, I've put a definition of reconciliation on the handout. It is the ending of a conflict and the renewing of a friendship. Now, the need for reconciliation assumes that there's a problem, a falling out. It also assumes a previous relationship. So if you came round to my house and met my, my good friend Wayne for the first time and you got on like a house on fire, and you probably would because he's such a lovely fella, you wouldn't go home and say, oh, I've been reconciled to, re to Wayne. No, for there to be a reconciliation, a reconciliation, there has to have been an initial friendship and then a breaking of that friendship. Now, the biggest reconciliation the Bible tells us we need is reconciliation with God, bringing us to our first point. Christ's death brings reconciliation with God. You see, we are made to be in relationship, in friendship with God, but now there is enmity between us. Um, that is a simple statement, and yet it explains to us why the world is as it is. If you ever look at the world and wonder why it's in the mess it's in, it is that reason we were made to be in relationship with God there is now enmity between us and God. And there is one thing and one thing alone that causes our problem with God, and that is our sin. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 59, uh, the first of those uh, two readings that Bernadette read for us. Page 745, Isaiah chapter 59. And as you uh, find that, this is one of those verses in the Bible that's well worth, if you do this with your Bible, underlining it. Uh, please, if you've got a church Bible, don't do that. Uh, but if you've got your own Bible, this is a good one to underline. Isaiah 59 and verse 2. Do you see it there? 
Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sometimes people say to me, when I pray, it feels as if my prayers are are bouncing off the ceiling. I feel as if there's a, a sort of barrier between me and God. That's because there is. Every time we sin, it's as if we're building a brick wall between us and God. Every sin, another brick in the wall. Sin separates us from God, just as sin separates us from one another. You know how it is when you fall out with someone. You know that bad feeling, the silence in the room, the the frostiness, the ice in the air, the awkwardness, the cold shoulder, the fact that sometimes you can't even bear to meet each other's eyes. That happens with God, you see. If it's going to happen with one another, then of course it's going to happen with God, isn't it? It happens with God. It's what sin does to our relationship with God. Now, I think we need to emphasise this in this day and age when, when we uh, and people generally take sin so lightly. Uh, we, because we don't see how serious it is, we don't think that it really has a big impact on people's relationship with God. I see that when I take funerals. Now, when I take funerals, people don't think they've got any problem with God. Of course they have. I think it's because we don't think sin's very bad. Look, it is shocking to consider how this nation has slipped in its readiness not only to accept simple behaviour, but actually to embrace it. Things that wouldn't have been acceptable 20 or 30 years ago are quite readily accepted, even applauded and celebrated. Now, we really don't take sin seriously in Britain today. The, The Ten Commandments are broken without us batting an eyelid. You shall not murder. We're not really shocked by the homicide on our streets these days, what are we? Unless it's particularly brutal murder. I can think back 30 years when any murder that happened made big news. Now it's just another murder. The only way it really makes the news is if it's really big. You shall not commit adultery. Laughed off as a prudish throwback to Victorian Britain. Sex is sold openly blatantly in the local news, news agent, in public telephone boxes, those little cards that are put up there. And it's used to sell pop music. Just look at the music videos that our children watch. We let our children watch music videos that are very provocative sexually. You shall not steal. Theft is everywhere. Car theft, credit card fraud, tax evasion. Don't even think about it. And covetousness. Who hasn't been seduced by the power of advertising that leaves us uh, wanting what isn't ours and buying what we can't afford? You see, we may not think this behaviour is bad. We may have come to accept it, it seems we have. But be under no illusions, God's standards have not changed. And all of this is highly offensive to God. And just as when I ruin my relationship with you, by sinning against you, so when I sin against God, it separates me from him. It always has, it always will. Isaiah 59 verse 2, your iniquities have separated you from your God, your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. And a consequence, a dreadful consequence of being separated from God is an inability to live in a good relationship with one another. Now, have you seen this uh, link? This is why as a nation, as we have drifted away from God, as increasingly we don't go to church as a nation, it is no coincidence that relationship breakdowns have increased. 
As we've stopped going to to church, the breakdown of the family has increased. The the basic unit that makes a society work is breaking down because people are ignoring God. See, our relationship with God, as we sin more and more, so we ruin our relationships with one another. My sin separates me from God, but it separates me from you as well. Because sin hurts people. Being grumpy, snapping at people, having a go at them, hurts them, it cuts to the heart. Think of a minister I know. You know, in the past, ministers were respected. I I don't think we should demand respect. We have to earn it. But in in the past, ministers were respected and they wouldn't have been spoken to the way that this minister is. He has uh, congregation members who write unpleasant emails, send him aggressive letters and make cutting throwaway remarks on the door and he says every time it happens it feels like a blow to the stomach. See, where's common decency gone? You've got a problem with someone, why don't we... We need to deal with it, but you don't need to do that, do you? Yet it's happening all the time. You think of how we treat people on the telephone. Sin hurts people. It ruins relationships. See, when simple things have been said and done, it's like building a brick wall. And the closer the relationship was in the first place, the more the the, the sin hurts. So for the relationship to be restored, uh, for there to be reconciliation, sin must be dealt with. Leon Morris makes the point. uh, the, uh, The quote is on the handout. At the heart of the idea of reconciliation there is the thought that getting people together means dealing effectively with whatever it was that was keeping them apart. That's what I have to do when I meet with with people who can't reconcile. I've got to find out what it is that is keeping them apart and then deal with that. The sin that is the cause of the problem needs to be dealt with. And that is why the New Testament tells us the death of Christ effected reconciliation for it is the death of Christ and the death of Christ alone that restores our relationship with God the death of Christ alone is the thing that deals with our sin Uh, look I've uh, pointed that out by um, uh, putting a couple of references there on the handout look at them Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 and 22 and you'll see that it is always the death of, of Christ which brings reconciliation to God Colossians 1 21 once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical death through death to present you holy in his sight. Did you see it there? Reconciliation with God comes through Jesus' death on the cross. We see the same in the next, uh, uh, the next um, uh, quote on the handout there. Romans chapter 5 verses 8 to 11. Look out for the reconciliation word. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, that is his death, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but also rejoicing God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Do you see, reconciliation with God comes only one way in the Bible, and that is through the death of Jesus. And this is important. We cannot be reconciled to God through any other way, for nothing else deals with our sin. So listen, you cannot be reconciled to God by doing lots of religious things. That won't work. 
And you cannot be reconciled to God through trying to be a good person. That won't work either. Those things don't deal with sin. Let me illustrate that. And I'm going to use an illustration I don't even like saying, and you'll see why. Do you think that if I did something terrible to my wife, I don't even like using this illustration, but I will. Do you think that if I betrayed her by having an adulterous affair with someone else, do you think that if I did that, that by doing lots of jobs around the house, that would make it better? Or that by buying her lots of expensive gifts, that would make it better? And yet that is how some people treat their relationship with God. I'll do lots of good things to make it better. How does that deal with sin? We are sinners and we can't get rid of our sin. We have a past, we have a history. Uh, The poet John Clare felt that when he wrote this. He said, if life had a second edition, how I would correct the proofs. You know that feeling? I'd like a rerun of life. I I know I've often done it in my life when I, I look back down through the years and I see those particularly bad moments and I think if only I could do that again, I'd have done it very, very differently. The times when I've blown it. But life doesn't have a second edition. It doesn't have a rerun. Can't get rid of the past. We're stuck with it. You have a past. I have a past. It's there. We need Jesus, you see, to deal with the past. To act in a way that wipes the past clean. To deal with our sin. Because that is our great problem. And to see just how great the problem is, look again at those two passages on the handout. Colossians 1 and Romans 5. Both of them describe us as enemies of God. See Colossians 1.21? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds. Now look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. Uh, So the first one says that we're enemies with God. The second says he's he's enemies with us. Romans 5 verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him. You see, both describe us as enemies. Our sin not only separates us from God, it makes us an enemy of God. And the only way that that can be dealt with is if sin is atoned for and God's anger taken away. Now, we looked at that last week. I know because of the snow, there's a lot of people couldn't make it. Let me again encourage you, get hold of the tape. Um, Have a look at the, the website if you can do it that way. And look at this word, propitiation. How God, how Jesus' death deals with God's wrath on the cross. That is the only place that it's dealt with. Nowhere else. And because of that, Paul can write these amazing words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, over the page on the handout. Look at these words. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19. Again, look at for our word, reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And then these words in verse 21 that are possibly the most remarkable words in the entire New Testament. Now that's quite a claim and you can decide whether they are or not. But look at these words. Verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that amazing? As Jesus was dying on the cross, the one who had lived a perfect life actually became sin. Our sin placed on him. He became sin for us. As God the Father looked on the Son, he looked on him and saw this ugly thing as he died on the cross because of all of our sin. James Denny commented on this verse. 
mysterious and awful as this thought is, it is the key to the whole of the New Testament. Well, that's quite a thought. God actually made the sinless Christ to be sin with our sins. And so you see at the cross, sin is not ignored or swept under the carpet. It is shown to be an awful thing. Do you want to know how bad your sin is? Look at the cross and look there and see that Jesus becomes sin so that our sin can be dealt with, so that we can become reconciled to God because there's a great transfer. Uh, You see it there in verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the substitutionary atonement, the great exchange. Jesus becomes sin, we become righteous before God. And so as God looks at Jesus on the cross, he looks at this ugly thing, and as he looks at us, he sees this righteous thing, this, these people that are now just like Jesus. That's how reconciliation can happen. The brick wall is gone. God doesn't see us as sinners anymore. He's no longer angry with us. He can be reconciled to us. And before we close this point, note that it is God who takes the brick wall down. We cannot break it down. We just keep on sinning. We just keep putting another brick in the wall. But God demolishes it so that we can be reconciled. What love. What a God to do that. Now that is the biggest reconciliation the Bible tells us we need. Reconciliation with God. And Christ's death brings reconciliation with God. But crucially, reconciliation with God brings reconciliation with others. As well, and that's our second point on the handout. Christ's death brings reconciliation with others. And let me tell you about Liz and Barry. And again, if you've not been here over the last couple of weeks, I need to repeat this. All these illustrations that I'm using of people, um, you won't know them, they don't come from this church, and I've changed their names and their circumstances so that you can't possibly trace them. Let me tell you about Liz and Barry. Uh, They'd been married about two years when Liz called me one miserable night in February. It was early evening and she asked if she could come round and see me straight away. And as I opened the door to her, I saw her there looking as white as a sheet and tears flowing down her face. And uh, she hadn't even taken her coat off when she uh, came in. She said, something terrible has happened. Barry has been charged with indecent exposure. Christian couple. What came out as I uh, subsequently met with the two of them was heartbreaking. Barry had uh, often been late home from work. Uh, He worked in the city and he told Liz again and again that he was working late. She thought, here he is looking after our home, uh, working hard for us. In fact, after work, he would ride the London tube network exposing himself to women. Now, there were many different emotions as they told me the details. He felt deeply ashamed He also felt quite relieved that that he'd been caught. He wanted to sort this thing out. He didn't even know why he did these things when he thought about it. Liz, well, she felt distraught. She felt betrayed, uh, disgusted. Uh, She felt that she was a failure. She felt that she obviously wasn't meeting his sexual needs. Then, of course, there was this complete lack of trust now in their relationship. There was embarrassment that this might come out into the open when it went to court. What would she say to her friends and family if they found out? And there was anger at what he'd done to her, to their marriage, to their future. Their world had fallen apart. Liz could barely bring herself to talk to him. She felt so disgusted she wanted to move out of the home. Actually, she wanted him to move out of the family home. 
She certainly couldn't share a bed with him. How do you restore a relationship like that? Well, that's uh, Liz and Barry's story, but you know, as I tell that story, there'll be other stories of significant relationship breakdown here in this congregation. The stories will be different. Uh, some of the stories will be about marriages, some will be about family breakdowns, some will be about breakdowns between friends. There'll be different stories, but they'll be no less painful with all those emotions. How does Christ's death bring reconciliation between people? Now, before I answer that question, let me say this. It is imperative that you find a way of reconciling because if you don't, you will become increasingly bitter towards the person that you are estranged from. And bitterness is a terrible thing. Bitterness is a downward cycle of blame and pain and that is so destructive. Have you felt that? Some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Bitterness leads to intense resentment, to hatred and cynicism and contempt. Bitterness is cold, raw, destructive misery. And bitterness is very dangerous to us. It takes such a grip on us that while others can see it, we become blind to it. Have you noticed that in bitterness? So when someone points it out to us, because they love us, when they say, I think you're becoming bitter, we deflect their warning by pointing to the person who's made us bitter and we say it's their fault. We can't see the bitterness, we blame someone else. It's always someone else's fault. The problem with that is it doesn't take away the bitterness. It's still there. It's crucial for our sakes that we are able to reconcile. But again, how is that possible? How could Liz and Barry reconcile? Let me tell you, they did... They worked it out. They stayed together, amazingly, and as I'm not in touch with them now. As far as I know, they are still together. How can that happen? Well, turn with me as we draw to a close to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. It's page 1174 in the Bible, Ephesians 2. Now, as you find this passage in the Bible... Uh, In this passage we see that Christ's death not only brings reconciliation with God, but it also brings reconciliation with others. Ephesians chapter 2. Here in this passage the the reconciliation is between Jew and Gentile. Now it's hard for us to realise how astonishing this is. Uh, Reconciling Jew and Gentile is on a par with recognising Nazi and Jew or Palestinian and Israeli or, or Taliban and coalition forces. I mean, you choose the, the big area of conflict that you think of and think there's no way those two groups can ever be reconciled. That's what's going on here. And importantly to realise as we look at this, this is not just about bringing an absence of hostility Here we are told in verse 14, do you see it there? That in Christ there is a peace that makes the two, the two warring factions, as one, actually united together. Not just no longer arguing, but now united. And you see it there in verse 14, Christ destroys the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. We build brick walls. Every time we sin, we put another brick in the wall. And because of sin, and because we can't get rid of sin, in this world, we sometimes build brick walls to to, to keep the peace. It's the only way we can make sure we don't kill each other. But the peace Jesus brings is so complete, the brick wall can come down. Verse 14, he destroys the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. 
And when it talks about him him bringing peace here in verse 14, the peace Jesus brings is so complete, um, the the brick wall can come down. The peace here is, is not just the absence of war or strife, it is the presence of something very positive. It is the shalom of God the presence of God's rich and full blessing, the sense of of well-being, of completeness, of wholeness. Now, we get that when we reconcile to God. You know, when you first became a Christian, that wonderful feeling, I can still remember it myself, when now everything was okay. I had that that sense of peace, of well-being, of of wholeness. I'd come back to where I should be. But what this is talking about here is that happens between others as well. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, when you suddenly think my relationship with others is good wholeness, completeness. That's what this is talking about. And in verse 16 we see that this peace brings reconciliation between people who couldn't even bear the sight of each other. What an amazing thing. And as we've seen already, verse 16, this peace comes through the cross by which Christ put to death their hostility. See, Jesus' death on the cross alone is what brings real, genuine peace, reconciliation, unity between men and women. And so Mark Driscoll writes, uh, again it's on the handout here, when you have the gift of forgiveness and new life from Jesus, you have all it takes to chop out your bitterness. I've witnessed that. See, in time Liz came to see that the axe for the root of bitterness that had begun to take root in her life was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross in her place and in the place of Barry for both her sins and his sins. Now do you see how this works? When I see what Jesus has done for me, when I see how he is prepared to go to the cross for my sin, I can learn to forgive others who have sinned against me. Because whatever they've done, and what Barry did was huge, but whatever they have done, whatever someone has done against me, it is nothing compared to the things I have done against God. And he has forgiven me. As we look at the cross, we have all the resources to forgive others because God has forgiven us infinitely more. Now C.S. Lewis understood this truth when he, he wrote his essay on forgiveness and I quoted this back in January Uh, in another series, but I think it bears repeating. Do you see it there on the sheet? To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Look, the, the message of the cross melts my stubborn heart when I feel deeply hurt by another human being. It gives me the resources to forgive as I look at what I have been forgiven. Now my guess is here that as I've been speaking there are people who are harbouring a grudge, who are bitter, and who need reconciliation. It's interesting, um, after the service, a couple of people asked some very helpful questions, but one person said to me, how do you reconcile them with someone who's died already? And after we chatted for only a brief time, she said, I suppose that goes to show you why it's so important that we get these things sorted out before death happens. Well, look, if you're a Christian, look at the cross. That's how you uh, can come about doing this. Look at how much Jesus has forgiven you. See the lengths God has gone to to, be re- to, to to reconcile you to himself and strive for reconciliation with the person who's hurt you. It's what God expects, actually. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Do you remember it? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, let me say to you, you can't do this on your own. Reconciliation begins with reconciliation to God and only then does it continue with other people, uh, with, a, with, a, with the church community. So if you need, know you need to be reconciled with someone else, but you're not yet reconciled with God, reconcile with him. You need to come to Christ. And maybe this morning there's someone here who's realised that for the first time you've realised just how offensive your sin is to God. You've realised uh, for the first time how it ruins your relationship with God, that your sin has alienated you from God, another bricking the wall every time you sin. And you've realised that you need the cross to bring you back to God, that nothing else is going to do it. Well, listen to this good news. Because of Christ's reconciliation, the way to reconciliation is open, but you must receive it. See, he's made the first move. It's always hardest, isn't it, to make the first move. He's made the first move. What a move it was, from heaven to earth. That's quite a move. Living the life that you could not live. Dying the death that you deserved. That is quite a move for reconciliation, isn't it? He made the first move. God took all the initiative. And now, you need to make the next move. What does it mean to make a move to God? It means turning in repentance and faith. Listen to what I'm not saying. It doesn't mean coming to church. I mean, you will want to come to church, but that's not the deal. Repentance and faith. Repentance, turning away from your sin, realising how much your sin offends God and saying, I don't want anything to do with that. And faith, trusting in Jesus' death alone to forgive you. Why are you going to get to heaven? Because Jesus died is the answer. If you don't say that, you're not a Christian. Why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Because Jesus died for me. Now when you do that, then you are reconciled to God and then you have all the resources necessary to reconcile with others. Now finally, as we close this morning, and in conclusion, see the astonishing love of God that is at the heart of this reconciling work of Christ. See, as we saw last week, as Jesus died on the cross, God the Father abandoned him. Do you remember those words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was God forsaken. See, he was made sin. Jesus, the Father turned away from him. How lonely for Jesus. Wayne Gruden puts it powerfully. He, Jesus, was cut off from the sweet fellowship with his heavenly Father that had been the unfailing source of inward strength and the element of greatest joy in a life filled with sorrow. Jesus had always longed and enjoyed this relationship with the Father. At the height of Jesus' suffering, he was very much alone. And that abandonment was agony for him, agony that you and I cannot begin to understand. See, as I said earlier, the greater the relationship was in the first place, the greater the pain when the relationship breaks down. And that's why Jesus' death was greater than anything you and I will ever experience. See, we cannot begin to imagine what it was like for Jesus to be separated from his Father. For they had never been separated and had never even had as much as a crossword between them for all eternity. Now you here may have a great relationship with someone, I hope you do, whether it's a spouse or someone else. You may have a wonderful relationship, but you will never have had a relationship like this where you have never, ever had a crossword or fallen out with someone. And that had happened with Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, all three of them, for eternity, past and forever in the future. We cannot imagine the agony it was then for Jesus to be separated from his Father. Tim Keller puts it brilliantly. 
There may be no greater agony than the loss of a relationship we desperately want. If a mild acquaintance turns on you, condemns you and criticises you, and she says she never wants to see you again, it is painful. If someone you're dating does the same thing, it is qualitatively more painful. But if your spouse does this to you, or if one of your parents does this to you when you're still a child, the psychological damage is infinitely worse. He says, we cannot fathom, however, what it would be to lose be like to lose not just spousal love or parental love those lasted years but the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity Jesus' sufferings would have been eternally unbearable now do you see Father and Son experience that unbearable suffering to reconcile us to themselves what love What a God. Let's pray.